Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Military History. I'm your host, Jay Lockenauer. Uh, joining me today will be Professor Beth Bailey from Temple University, who is the author of America's Army, Making the All-Volunteer Force. Uh, I'm a German historian, and I won't normally be doing uh, interviews on re- relating to books on American history, um, but I especially wanted to do this one, not least because uh, Beth is the chair of the history department here at Temple, where I am, but because this is such an important book, um, not to read as an historian necessarily, but to read as a, as a citizen of the United States. What started out as a book about the Army's effort to advertise itself and to recruit soldiers really morphed over time into a, an institutional history of the Army over the past four decades. And it's a history that reveals um, not only the, uh, the Army's uh, relationship with American society and its struggle to struggle with the things that American society struggles with, um, civil rights, race, gender, um, changing nature of media and technology, um, so it reflects on those um, social aspects of the United States Army, um, but it also doesn't, it doesn't neglect the role of the armed forces in defending America's interests because, of course, the Army has to do both of those things. It has to um, compete on the job market, but it also has to do its job as an army. And um, Beth does a great job of uh, telling this story in such a way that you understand um, some of the tensions and paradoxes and problems that were faced by the army as it as it made the transition from a, a draft army in the 50s, 60s, and early 70s into an all-volunteer force that we have today. So I hope you enjoy the interview. I hope you read the book. It's, uh, it is fascinating. It is worthwhile to read, to understand a bit more about this very important institution. It's my pleasure today to sit down with Professor Beth Bailey from Temple University, who's the author of America's Army, which was published last year with Harvard Press. Uh, thanks again, Beth, for joining me today. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we always start off the interviews by giving the author a, an opportunity to introduce herself to our listeners. So uh, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, I'm a professor of history at Temple University, and uh, I received my Ph.D. from the University of Chicago and have taught at several institutions in the meantime. Um, I'm not, I haven't always been someone who's written about military history. I started out working in the fields of gender and sexuality in American cultural history uh, and wrote about the, the sexual revolution and uh, about the 1960s and 1970s fairly extensively before I came to this project. I got interested in this really because of watching television, something cultural historians can excuse as a, a form of research in, in some way. And I, I saw the commercials in the mid-1990s that portrayed that were trying to recruit young men and women for the military and essentially presented it as a form of uh, what, redemption, uh, uh, join the military and uh, live up to your potential. And I was fascinated by that appeal and thought it'd be interesting to write something about military advertising. And um, as I started looking into that process, I realized I really did need to understand the military and then specifically the Army. And it turned into a book not about military advertising, although that does play some role in it, but a a book about how the volunteer Army was made. And I think like most successful books or books that get published anyway, it it speaks to multiple audiences. I mean, it's not just a book about the Army, though that's the the title. It's a book that purports to be about American history and important themes in American history, race, gender, and class to a certain extent. Yeah, I, I think of it as a book that looks at American history in this period through the lens of the Army. And it's in part because I think that the U.S. military and the Army in particular was at the center of an awful lot of the struggles that took place during this period of the late 60s through, uh, through the present, really. Um, and I, I make arguments about transformations of American society that put the Army at the center. 
Um, and you set up the, the story of the creation of the all-volunteer force. That's the, the subtitle of, of the book, is Making the All-Volunteer Force, as one that reveals a struggle in America about the, the relative value of equality versus liberty. Yeah, uh, you know, that's, that's the tagline, I guess, uh, equality versus liberty. Two central values in American society that coexist uneasily. Uh, and traditionally, military service in America has been understood as one of the obligations of citizenship. And from the beginning, going back to the British tradition of having a common militia, the United States, uh, America then the United States, sort of expected that citizens had a set of rights and obligations and that military service was one of those obligations. Um, that's where the question of equality comes in. Now, of course, that notion of equality is more or less flawed, just like notions of equality always have been in American history, because the common militia, uh, there were uh, hundreds, 200 laws, in fact, during the colonial period that exempted people from military service based largely on questions of status. Um, co common military service was for citizens, which meant free white men. Uh, women have always played a complicated role in this. Uh, no, it wasn't at all a fully equal set of expectations. But nonetheless, the notion that military service is attached to citizenship does work more closely with notions of equality, whereas parallel to that, even reaching that far back, was a tension with the notion that liberty is the highest good and that's what must be guaranteed. And um, you know, the notion that the state can demand military service of its citizens is an enormous infringement upon individual liberty. Um, people got around that by essentially assuming that citizens would rise voluntarily to defend themselves, their homes, their families, their nation, if under serious threat. So, you know, it didn't have to always be diametrically opposed, but it was a central tension that came into play very explicitly as people started to struggle over whether or not we were going to get rid of the draft and the volunteer force. And I thought it was interesting that you can't really tell the story of the contemporary army, the all-volunteer force, without first talking about the, the place of the draft and, and those um, paradoxes or tensions that you're, that you're describing. Um, uh, I was struck also, although at, at a certain level it's obvious, that the contemporary draft that still is in existence um, mm -hmm. for emergency purposes is called the selective service. So it, yeah. it, it, it implies that notion of selectivity, which is both means that it's not universal, but also that there's a, a process of selection. Um, in the era when there was the draft before the all-volunteer force, tell me a little bit about that process of selection, what the Army was looking for in its recruits. Okay. Um, but let me go back one step and, and simply say that the draft was really an anomaly in American society, uh, that the, the United States had had volunteer force for most of its history except in case of major wars in which draft was implemented. And the first time that there was a peacetime draft was shortly before the United States entered into the ongoing war. World War II um, in 1940. Um, after the war, most people assumed that the, the draft would go away. Most people assumed it would go back to a volunteer force. But the standing of the United States in the world had changed, and it was necessary to maintain a very large standing military. Um, what that meant is that the, the military needed to recruit oh, about 40,000 young men a month. Uh, that's an awful lot of people. Right now, we aim for about 65,000 a year. So uh, that that was difficult. Um, nonetheless, the, the draft was gotten rid of for a while in the late 1940s. Um, and the, the military struggled to fill those boots and struggled very hard. Even so, there was a notion that it could be dispensed with, but then the United States uh, became involved in the Korean War. And after that, it just became a presence in American life that people started to, to take for granted. Uh, one of the problems that the military faced, that the selective service system faced, as it attempted to create an efficient manpower system, 
uh, was to think about what to do with all those people that it had to deal with. It, it didn't need the entire generation of young men. So it had to come up, the nation had to come up with a set of deferments that allowed them to choose the people that they thought would be most useful um, and to channel others into those fields that seemed to support the defense of the nation. And in the post-World War II period, uh, you know, especially in the years following Sputnik, there, there was a, a strong sense that the United States was going to be strong because of technology, because of advances in science, um, and that those students, those young people who showed intellectual aptitude, especially in science, technology, engineering, uh, should be allowed to follow that path and not be pulled into the military. Someone, uh, you know, in, in this process said rather coldly that it was relatively easy to replace a GI, but it was really hard to replace a physicist. Rocket scientists are few and far between. Yeah. Um, I guess I was thinking more, even in an earlier period, about one of the ways that the draft connected to American society, and that was this effort to to mold society through this opportunity that the draft presented, even in the First World War, when it was a wartime draft, um, to administer tests to um, in, you know, combat venereal disease on you know to mm -hmm. make men moral, as as Nancy yeah. Bristow's book, uh, the title of Nancy yeah, Bristow's it's a great book. book, right? But in the Second World War, then with the advent of IQ testing and things like that, that it was part of this this. Um, data fixation that you can see in American mm -hmm. society, the advent of social science and so forth. Yeah, the social science was important here, and in part it was because of the lessons learned from World War One that uh, not only changed the way that the government attempted to manage its propaganda during World War II, but, but uh, psychologists and psychiatrists started to make powerful claims during this period that they could assist with the war effort by weeding out the people who were going to uh, not adapt well to military service. Uh, by those estimates, it had cost the nation a billion dollars to, in terms of payments to those people who suffered from psychoneurotic kinds of casualties, not the term used then, after World War I. And the, the notion that a lot of psychiatrists and psychologists promulgated is that through effective screening, they could pull out the men who would become uh, dependent on the state after the war. They could screen out those people who would cause problems in units, who would not adapt well to military life. Um, and they set up a, a profound set of, of screenings to weed people out. But they also set up a series of tests that were meant to channel men into the proper uh, uh, occupations within the military to, to try and create the, uh, create the most efficient uh, use of military manpower possible. Uh, and so that set of sort of data-driven understandings was, was critically important during World War II and, and stayed important in the years after the war. Well, let's talk about then the end of the draft in the, in the early 70s. Why, why end the draft? Oh, it was a perfect storm. Uh, the The support for ending the draft came from all directions, and it it wasn't a new idea. Uh, there had been uh, attempts to study the the getting rid of the draft going back uh, into the 1950s. So it was ended in the late 1940s. There was about a 10-year period where it was left intact, and then people started to talk about whether or not we really needed the draft, in part because there were so many young men, it was relatively easy to fill the ranks of the standing army. Um, but by the late 1960s, as opposition to the war in Vietnam grew, much of that was attached to the draft. And most Americans by that point believed that the draft wasn't functioning fairly. By the end of World War II, 79% of Americans still believed that the draft had functioned fairly, which is amazing. You know, but it reached very broadly and deeply into the American population. And while there were certainly inequities, you know, there was a sense of shared sacrifice. Whereas in the Vietnam War, it was patently obvious to pretty much everyone that the draft was not um, a, a fair mechanism. And especially with less support of the war, with a relatively small percentage of young men serving, especially in combat in Vietnam, um, there was an enormous amount of opposition there. Um, at the same time, there were uh, people who thought that 
by getting rid of the draft, it would make it much more difficult for the American administrations to lead the nation into what they saw as military adventurism, because if they couldn't just, you know, wave the magic wand and summon up however many men they wanted, but instead had to convince people to volunteer the nation to support, that obviously it would be very difficult to send troops to a war that was unpopular. And then finally, there was a group growing in power through this period, libertarians, free market economists, who were making a, a carefully argued intellectual academic argument that this was an infringement on liberty and that it was, in effect, a hidden tax on the young men who were drafted and forced to serve. And they did economic analyses which proved and did prove, in fact, you know, whether one supports that understanding or not, that if a, a young man was forced to um, give, you know, a couple of years or more of his youth to military service, which was paid quite poorly, um, he was sacrificing not only the earnings he would have accrued during that period, but the time that he would have used to uh, get more schooling or to advance himself in his job, career, profession, and that the long-term effects of that tax were extraordinary, especially given that they weren't widely shared. And so people are making the argument based on Vietnam, people are making the argument based on this notion of, of the hidden tax, people are trying to constrain adventurism, people are talking about liberty. Uh, all directions opposition is mounting to the draft. And in the meantime, you know, the United States is deeply mired in the Vietnam War. Um, well, we'll talk about the importance of the promise to end the draft to Nixon's uh, election campaigns. Um, but first, I wanted to touch on that idea about American adventurism, because that seems sort of paradoxical to me, because, you know, I guess having lived with a pro professional volunteer army for several decades now, it seems like it's in fact easier to send these volunteer professional troops off on adventures without having to explain it to the American public, whereas a draft would sort of force that kind of explanation. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure I buy that. I, I can see why they would make that argument, but... Yeah, um, it, it didn't work out that way. Right. <laughs> and that's something we'll, we'll also want to talk about at the end is this uh, the issue of private contractors and, mm -hmm. a, and a, not even a an American army now anymore, but more or less a, a kind of corporate army that might be on the horizon. Yeah, although people did use the term mercenary when they were arguing against a volunteer force, mm -hmm. which offended a lot of the officers in the army. Yeah, well, let's talk about that. What, what did the army think about the end of the draft? You talked about economists and... and um, yeah, a more public audience. What is? Did the army want to end the draft? At the height of the involvement in the Vietnam War. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a silly, right. silly question. Um, well, I mean, it was it was a strange moment because it's 1968, and you know, have to you have to go back and imagine what 1968 was like for the country. Um, you know, it the it was following the summer of love. Uh, you know, young people wearing, uh, you know, trying to create an alternate consciousness and doing what their parents, who had you know grown up in the depression and fought World War II, and you know, they they saw their children throwing their lives away. So there was this enormous sense of a generation gap, even though many young people certainly you know, lived just. Uh, very fairly stayed lives and supported the war in Vietnam and, and such. But the Tet Offensive at the beginning of 1968, the assassination of Martin Luther King and the anger that spilled over in, in the racial divisions of the country, the assassination of, of Bobby Kennedy, um, the tanks in the streets of Chicago during the Democratic National Convention, it's a presidential election year, and Richard Nixon goes on the radio, CBS radio, two weeks before the election, bought a half an hour time, time period, and he promised to end the draft. I mean, Nixon, it's not where where I thought I was going to find this. And you know, he, was, he was in part just trying to show that he could be a bold thinker, maybe draw some you know, votes from young people, maybe trying to diffuse the protest against the war a little bit because he and LBJ both believed it was largely driven by protest against the draft. Um, and lots of people thought you know, it was a political stunt and it would go away. Uh, and other people thought that he was just you know, gambling with the security of the nation. But he followed through, and the military was not at all pleased by this prospect. Um, you know, it couldn't be a worse moment to start talking about 
ending the draft, and they kind of had other things on their minds at that moment. <laughs> to, say the, to say the least. And one thing we haven't mentioned so far is the, the importance of the draft in motivating volunteers. That mm -hmm. even in the era of the draft, the Army and the other armed forces got a, lot, a large number of volunteers, but the idea was that they were motivated by the, the threat of the draft. And what, what was the benefit of volunteering? Well, the, you know, in, in the late 1950s, early 1960s, there were years where virtually no one was drafted because they had so many volunteers, most of whom were draft motivated. If you joined, you had more control over the conditions of service. Uh, you had more control over what you would be doing. Uh, you know, many young people, when there wasn't a war, figured there was a likelihood of military service. It wasn't a bad thing to be doing. You know, it, there was a tradition of service. They joined. Um, the Vietnam War made that more complicated, but you know there was an incentive to join during the Vietnam War that most of the United States military was not in Vietnam, serving in Germany and mm -hmm. Korea. Yeah, and so that was you know that was that was a good mechanism. You had to promise more time. Uh, you weren't fully guaranteed that you wouldn't end up in Vietnam, but uh, it, unless you were volunteering for the the infantry, you had a much better chance of ending up in Germany if you volunteered. Right, so the end of the draft seemed um, like a bad idea because presumably those those draft motivated volunteers would go away. Yeah, would go away, uh, and you know the military tried to do studies to find out how many people were actually draft motivated, and it was a fairly significant number. And recruiters, you know, were, were order takers. They at that moment were often people whose careers were kind of going nowhere. They were serving out the last bit. And, you know, they sat in basement offices and wrote down people's names when they came in. And that wasn't going to work in the future. And what was the date when the, when the draft officially ended? I remember you mentioned the name of the, the, the young man who was the last draftee. I wonder, I kind of felt sorry for him. I know. Yeah, well, it's that last man to die in Vietnam line, yeah. too. But uh, the, the last person began his obligated tour of military service in, uh, on June 30th, 1973, I 73, think. 73, right. Yeah. Um, but the process of ending the draft uh, went on from a commission appointed in 1969 on through 1973. So while the United States was um, finishing its fighting in Vietnam, the military was also trying to figure out how it was going to turn to a volunteer force. Mm -hmm. And of course, it faced some really enormous problems in in creating a volunteer army. Why don't you tell us about some of those problems? Oh, boy, um, well, especially the army. Uh, it, this was uh, the moment when the military probably had the least respect that it has ever had in American history, and even its own leaders tend tended to think of it as uh, an institution that was very close to being broken. Uh, the culture of youth at that moment was, you know, I would say it was much more comfortable with phrases like question authority than with yes sir, and the uh, army leaders were very much aware of that, and that was going to be a real problem. And, you know, it was at the end of uh, an unpopular and difficult war. It was in a moment where the economy didn't necessarily seem to be pushing young people into military service. There was just one problem after another that seemed to work against the notion of getting rid of the draft. And the, the chair of the House Armed Services Committee liked to say the only way we're ever going to get a volunteer force in this country is to draft one. Uh, and he said it over and over and over and over. Um, so, you know, obviously Congress wasn't fully in support of this either. But, you know, that's one of the things about the military in American society is, you know, they don't get to decide this stuff. And that's that's what they were told to do. And yeah, there's a pretty clear sense that they're, they're they take the order from the top and they say we're gonna we're gonna do this and they so they study the problem of recruiting a, a volunteer mm -hmm. force and they look at um, problems in the army um, problems wh whether it might be just a, a, a problem of Vietnam or mm -hmm. whether it might be American society. And what's their conclusion out of that study? That it's all of the above. <laughs> it's all of the above. And what's interesting is that the President's Commission on the All-Volunteer Force, the Gates Commission that um, Nixon appointed, 
was was stamped very heavily by these free market economists. I mean, Milton Friedman was on it. Um, you know, not only the members, but also the staff. And the staff of the commission is often what really determines what's going to happen, because they're the ones who you know, set the agenda, gather the data, uh, you know, set the terms of the debate. And so what the Gates Commission came out with, essentially, was let's turn to the free market. Um, we'll, we'll pay competitive wages, and that should solve the problem. And the Army, which is you know, the institution I studied, was having much more complicated and thoughtful discussions about how this was going to work, looking at the broader society and, and youth culture, looking at the institution itself and trying to figure out what needed to be done to repair and reform the Army, uh, you know, thinking, thinking much more creatively. I was really impressed by the amount of creativity and flexibility that the Army showed in trying to figure out how to implement something that he definitely was not pleased about doing. Mm -hmm. I was struck. I mean, I'm, I'm a German historian, and I'm always struck by the comparisons here to the problems that the Germans faced in the 1950s in, in uh, recreating their, their army when the Bundeswehr was created in 55. And one of the things that the traditional officer corps worried about, I saw reflected here, which is that you know, making, making the army a job yeah. um, as opposed to a calling, almost, was the way that I think the Germans would, would conceive of it. Um, I can recall officers objecting that what you're doing is you're making death in war an industrial accident if mm -hmm. you're recruiting these people as a, to, to have a job as opposed to you know, a heroic death for your nation, whatever uh, you might call it. And I heard echoes of that yeah. very much in the American Army, too. Very much. Uh, the, the, the Army was adamant that this it's not just another employer and this is not just another job, but the model that it was given, and it had little choice, was to turn to the labor market and to compete with other employers. When Richard Nixon went on the air on CBS and said this, he said, you know, the problem is, is the Army, the military hasn't had to compete in the labor market. And if we just turn to the wisdom of the market, we'll solve this problem, which, you know, is, is a, a, a very difficult formulation for all concerned, and I think... Not, not a good one. Right. And of course, a problem that we're facing now is the, the ethical considerations mm -hmm. of, uh, you know, how much do you have to pay someone when they're risking their lives, basically, in a, mm -hmm. in a, in a job. Well, there was a debate in the Gates Commission um, between uh, two people. Milton Friedman was one of them. And the other man was saying, I don't really think that it's, it's moral to pay someone to, you know, sacrifice his life. And Milton Friedman said, well, would you rather not pay them to do so? It's, you know, by that logic, we shouldn't pay them anything at all. Right, so. right. If serving is such a, such a high, has a, such a high moral value. Uh, yeah, and not to belabor the point, but, but I think there was also that some officers, maybe Westmoreland, uh, who was retired by this point, but um, represents... Well, no, he was the chief of staff of the Army. Oh, in 73? Seventy-three. I'm not sure when he came out, but right. he was through the process. He was in charge of it. I mean, well, he remains a fixture in this story, in yes. a way, even even into retirement. He represents, in some ways, the the culture of the the army. And you mentioned that he sees he sees this as a, a uh, an opportunity, perhaps, to to save American youth from itself, to sort of teach them values of citizenship and duty and sacrifice and so forth. Yeah, well, there were a lot of people say, you know, making the argument that this was just an impossible generation to deal with, uh, and he, he, he really spent a lot of time traveling around the country confronting the, the anger that much of the American public felt at its military. And he developed a strong argument that the military gave something to American youth. It wasn't simply taking from them, it was giving to them. And he rehearsed this in, in site after site. Sometimes, you know, uh, protesters uh, drowned him out, preventing him from speaking. Uh, he, there, are, there are many arguments to be made about this, but for someone who was not a fan of moving to a volunteer force, he put a lot of time into thinking about how he could craft this argument and present it to the American public. Yeah, the image that Westmore he he has a relatively positive image in this in this book as a whole. I think he gets you make the point he gets maybe perhaps a, kind of a bad rap for his involvement in Vietnam and his role in Vietnam, but he's he plays an important role in this transition. He plays an important role in this transition. Uh, I'm, I, I think I was sympathetic, and I was trying to look at what he was trying to understand and handle overall. So, you know, while he is trying uh, to 
manage the move to the all-volunteer force, he's also dealing with uh, Nimai and the crisis over uh, the public exposure of the massacre there and attempting to do a study of the army to determine whether or not the leadership is broken. He is managing all sorts of public protest. They're, to do a timeline of what's happening at one point, if you just follow the process of the volunteer force and the creation of the volunteer force, uh, it perhaps looks less sympathetic, but when you look at the larger picture, there's an enormous amount going on. And often this was one of the minor issues that he and the other um, army leaders were dealing with. And he does say some goofy things in oh, the long run. Awful like things. He call, he call, I remember the section where he calls female service immoral, which again is a, is a stance that one could take. Um, but then he follows that up with a claim that our nation has never officially sanctioned an immoral practice. Like yes, like slavery. slavery. <laughs> yeah, and oddly enough, nobody called him on it. Um, yeah, and so my my portrayal of Westmoreland is not about his role in Vietnam, or but it does look at the role he played in the uh, move to the volunteer force and the debates over who should be included in the force in later years. And he was a real opponent of. Um, this this was talking about women in combat. This wasn't simply right. talking about women's participation. Um. But I guess, on, so those are the ethical considerations, but on the ground, there were people who had to work to make the army more palatable, uh, mm -hmm. just to make service seem like something you actually yeah. want to do. What kind of undertakings were there to, to try to make the army look better? Well, there was, there was a, uh, essentially a two-pronged approach. The first piece of it was to reform the army. Um, on, the, um, on a significant level, there were studies about army leadership that meant to uh, investigate what kind of failures that existed during Vietnam. But on the recruiting level, looking at enlisted men, um, and men is what they were concerned with, uh, they decided that they were going to do some fundamental reforms and get rid of what they politely called irritants, but what they really meant was chicken shit. And so they started saying, okay, nobody likes Reveille, right? Why do we, why do we need to wind people up <laughs> the in the dark in the rain? Uh, and, uh, why do we need barracks? Couldn't people have semi-private rooms that they can decorate for themselves? What about beer in the barracks, which became the huge, crisis issue. Um, and often in this discussion, uh, it was uh, in response to disaffection and anger from people who had rotated back after serving in Vietnam. But it was also done with parallels to civilian society. Uh, you know, if you have a, a job at the grocery store, your boss doesn't come and wake you up in the morning to make sure you're there on time. You just have to show up. Uh, you know, uh, civilian bosses don't monitor what time you go to bed at night. You, you just are supposed to get enough sleep so you can do your job in the morning. So once again, it's that transfer of the notion of, of military service and military is something that is an exceptional institution into something that is treated as simply the parallel to a civilian job. Um, it was also a time of enormous uh, division and anger in American society, especially over race. And so uh, the Army, the military in general, was trying to figure out how to handle that. So and setting up rap groups, trying to have senior officers come and hang out with the you know, enlisted ranks and chat about things, uh, you know, having ombudsmen to talk about problems. It, all, all sorts of experiments. Uh, they called the experiments Volar uh, for Volunteer Army, and it got an enormous amount of uh, bad press, including, uh, you know, uh, a big cover story in Life magazine. And eventually the people who were in charge of this decided that that kind of language was not going to work at all well, especially within the Army, and they instead started talking about professionalization, professionalism, and that that language worked a whole lot better even when it was talking about some of the same actions. Sure, within the Army and, and without as well. Yeah, but they, they used a football analogy. You know, it's like, okay, so you've got the football team and you're training the football team, but, you know, then you send a couple of the guys on the team out to sell the tickets and some other people are going to go and mow the grass on the playing field. And, you know, by the time you finish, you, you, you know, half the people aren't training for what they're supposed to be training for. So, you know, why don't we concentrate on what they're supposed to be doing, have other people do those things, don't have all of the irritants, uh, and we'll have a much better football team. And it also fits with the kind of um, political philosophy that, that 
that um, brought the army into the market, right? Is you can privatize these these aspects of like KP, you know, providing yeah. catering to the to the army and so forth. Right. So you know, nobody wants to peel potatoes, so we can privatize that. Uh, it's going to cost some money, but then we release people to do you know, what they're supposed to be here doing. So we're both reducing irritants and improving the professional quality of the force. That was the argument. And as you said at the beginning, you, your entree into this topic was really was advertising, your interest yeah. in, in advertising. And um, so the Army starts advertising. I guess, had it, had it advertised as such before? Yes. Um, and that was the second strand of what it decided to do. It just, the, the Army decided it had to recast its image. Um, when they started doing research about moving to a volunteer force, a survey discovered that 70% of Army veterans would tell the people they cared about to join any service other than the Army. So, you know, they're really working uh, uphill here. Uh, the Army, um, all the branches had advertised in the past, um, but the advertising was more to compete with the other services. If you're thinking of volunteering, um, you know, join us instead of them. And there, but there were traditionally advertising agencies that were affiliated with the different services. And the Army uh, turned to NWAR at this moment and said, we need to change our image. We need to come up with a slogan that's going to make young people think differently about the Army, join the Army. Um, they gave them basically two weeks to do this. And um, NWAR, which was then located you know, mainly in Philadelphia, and they, they go away and they, they brainstorm. Uh, how are we going to do this? And the the slogan they come up with, and they, there's a meeting with you know Westmoreland and Army officials uh, in D.C. and and their their new slogan is um, I'm, I'm I'm forgetting this. <laughs> you don't want to look uh, it up. No, I don't want to. Uh, Today's army wants to join you, right? Right, that's the yes. first one. Right? Yes, I can't believe I forgot that. Um, wants to join you, so it's taking Uncle Sam, you know, pointing the finger. You know, I want you. The army wants to join you, just turning it on its head. Um, and it's in part because research showed that what young people were most worried about in joining the army was losing their individuality. That was the early 1970s. And so this, this advertising agency decides that what it's going to promise people is that you can join the army and you'll be an individual. You know, slightly counterindicated, but it's the advertising campaign. Uh, Wes Moreland listened to this and he said evidently, do you have to say it that way? And it was enormously unpopular in the, the army. And, you know, people hated it, just hated it. But, you know, it, it, it did promise. What, what they were trying to do is to say military service isn't an obligation. It's an opportunity. And to emphasize the various benefits that military service brought you, whether it was uh, uh, employment or job training, there were ads for you know the the 16-month tour of Europe, sort of a play on tour, like you know going to travel around Europe and the tour of duty. Um, there were a lot of ads that were sort of like join the army, get the girl. Uh, there's a lot of there was a wonderful advertisement, video advertisement called Goodbye. Um, for for um, you know delayed entry program essentially, where the guy is busy saying goodbye over and over to a long series of young women, and you know it's clear he's gotten himself in way over his head, and the only way he's going to escape from all these expectations is to just join the army and no, get out of town. Kind of like the French Foreign Legion. Right? Uh -huh. oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Probably not the the comparison that they wanted to make. I was I uh, laughed at the advertisement that, that had the chicken with the dog tags. Oh yes. It was bye bye birdie. So it was supposed to indicate that the army the the chicken shit is gone from the army, right? The, yeah. the, the reveille and so forth. But they never actually produced that one. That was one of the, you know, evidently it was very popular among the army officials who were supposed to be deciding. I, I can't imagine, you know, advertising the U.S. Army with a chicken. chicken. <laughs> Somebody wasn't thinking very well there. Yeah. Sometimes the light of day you know, solves those kinds of problems. Um, so while they're while they're advertising and so forth, they're they're trying to keep up with these recruiting uh, re requirements, but they're also trying to make sure that the army that recruits are of quality, and this becomes an important term for the army that getting quality recruits. Mm -hmm. And you sort of imply that that becomes a, a code word for race. Is that for some people it was a code word for race, but in in most of the discussions, the issue of race shadowed the 
the, the conversation about quality. Turning to the market meant that the Army had to compete with employers. And what happened in the initial years when military service was not well regarded, when um, most, most people, most young people weren't really thinking in those terms, is that they um, appealed most to those people who had the fewest options, which to a great extent in American society because of, of job discrimination, racial discrimination, meant African Americans, and particularly African American men who had fewer other kinds of skills and options. So overall what was happening is that the, the data measured quality of the volunteer force was and the Army was, was going rapidly down. Um, and the number of African Americans in the service was going up dramatically at the same time. People at that moment of a great deal of racial division and anger talked about the inequality involved. Is this simply an economic draft? Is it um, a, a volunteer force that is built on the backs of the poor and the black? Um, other people at this moment worried about angry young black men with guns. Uh, and were willing to talk publicly about that. But as there were concerns that the Army was not getting young men of, of quality, meaning that they had an earned high school diploma and scored above in the top half of the admissions exam, um, and as the percentage of black people went up dramatically, it, it created a, a fair crisis around the issue of race. And then just sort of bring that crisis to a head. They discover around 1980 that their test was flawed. That something they hadn't recalibrated mm -hmm. the test correctly, so that in fact they were they thought they were getting recruits in certain categories, quality categories, mm -hmm. when they weren't. What they it, the test had been improperly calibrated, and it turned out for, in a recalibration that about half of um, non prior service recruits that were joining the Army in that period were in Category 4, which is the lowest category that they can legally accept into the military. And the uh, skills qualification tests during this period were finding that huge numbers of people, even those people you know, working with nuclear weapons, and uh, were not able to meet the, the qualification standards. And in fact, the only uh, institution within the Army that performed up to expected quality levels was the band. Um, which wasn't reassuring at all. But to go back to race, one of the, the problems here is since the Army was presenting itself as a source of benefit rather than of obligation, um, on the one hand, you end up with more and more African-American men serving in the military. And uh, you know, the Army's getting really nervous about this because should there be a war, there are going to be disproportionate casualties among that population. And the echoes of genocide and cannon fodder from the Vietnam War had not disappeared. On the other hand, since the Army is marking itself as, as a source of benefits and opportunities, closing off in any fashion those opportunities to African Americans who have been discriminated against and denied equality in American society, there are many black leaders who are appalled when people are saying there are too many black men in the Army. So. You know, it's, it's a no-win situation in some senses, and then it gets all tied up with this issue of quality. When the Army, by the end of the 1970s, has started um, issuing comic books as a way to train young men, um, not something that's, you know, defensible. Very encouraging. Right? The, other, the other large um, issue in American society that accompanies this process is uh, gender and the role of women in the, in the Army. Um, and the creation of the all-volunteer force coincides with the, the era of the ERA, the era of ERA. Um, how does that impact the, the, the creation of the all-volunteer force? Well, the, the military is very much aware that if the ERA is ratified, that it's going to have a profound effect on women's roles in the military. Um, but at the same time, uh, from the beginnings, it's clear that the only way that they're going to fill all those boots is to look more broadly in terms of who they're recruiting, and women are going to be necessary. It's going to be necessary to have more women in the Army, and that those women are going to have to play a wider variety of roles. So 
even at the beginning, there's there's more and more attempt to to recruit women, and they're also having negotiations about what they're going to do with those women once they get them into the army. You know, which MOSs are going to be open to women, um, and the the political mood of the country in the early 1970s. I mean, it's 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 hard to remember these days that the ERA was passed by Congress with broad bipartisan support. The Republicans and the Democrats were on board, and it looked like it was going to get passed quite quickly. So, it, you know, the, they being concerned about the implications of the ERA was, uh, you know, necessary. It seemed like it was going to get ratified. Uh, and so there were um, an awful lot of discussions and negotiations going on there about what women were going to do. And of course, there was a there were women in the army. There was a women's army corps, mm-hmm. um, and I, I was struck by the way that that overlapped with this issue of quality because the the many double standards involved in the the regulations that applied to women in terms of marriage and childbirth yeah. and so forth. Um, uh, but at this moment, when they're finding out that the the male recruits are not meeting their standards, the female recruit standards for the female recruits are very very high. They're See, I'm impressed you noticed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, until through 1967, um, women had very restricted roles. I mean, they were they were legally limited to make up no more than two percent of the military force. And in 1973, I think it was 1.3 percent total. Um, but you know, they, they couldn't have command authority over men. They, they were discharged to pregnant. They couldn't serve if they had children under 18. Uh, married women couldn't enlist, although you could marry while in the military. And that was one of the ways they tried to recruit women. You know, the, the sex ratio is really great. Join the army and get a husband. Um, but that transition to uh, thinking about using women more broadly was important and started to create tensions about the fact that women uh, were held to different standards. So women raised the quality uh, criteria for the Army a good deal, but there were so few of them it didn't make that much difference. Um, But they also were held to different moral standards. Uh, Women who had had a venereal disease or had had a child outside of marriage were uh, disqualified from military service, whereas men who had that history, that wasn't even condition for a waiver or a conversation. And as the deputy chief of staff of personnel started to say, we're getting some pushback on this. You know, why do women have different standards than men? The head of the women Arm- women's army corps said, no, you know, this is important. Women have to hold a, a higher moral standard. We have to have an image of uh, unimpeachable respectability and propriety. Uh, in American society, and you know, it's the women who are saying we should keep different standards, and you know, some of the male officers who are saying, why? Mm-hmm. Um, it's also striking the the difference between the army's attitude uh, toward uh, women and their attitude toward racial minorities. So, with for all the care that they handle the issue of African Americans with. Um, they seem sort of Neanderthal in many cases in, in their relations to women, the way they the way they talk about f- women in female service. Yeah, um, although you know, the integration of the military had taken place a long time before, and they were still struggling with it in the 1970s. And so, while uh, attitudes, language, and behavior was much more impressive when you talk about white men and black men, it had been a very long time coming and a very difficult process. So. You know, I, I I tend to make the argument here that um, none of these issues of race, of gender, and the, you know the current issue of openly gay service have necessarily been solved quickly or easily. But at the same time, the U.S. military has in general done a pretty good job eventually with this service. But in the early 1970s, the language is is Neanderthal at best. Uh, there's just an enormous amount of patronizing language. It's not simply the the reasonable debates about whether or not uh, you know women's upper body strength is a problem for you know being in the infantry, whatever. Uh, it's you know the the ads that um, portray women seeking husbands and you know you can join the army and still be feminine. The um, secretary of the army, Bo Calloway, testifying before Congress when Congress was doing hearings about whether or not to open the military academies to women, said, you know, the women bring so much to the Army. Um, One of the main things they bring is charm. Charm. We need an Army with charm. 
Um, well, the, the heads of the Women's Army Corps, you know, Westmoreland called in uh, the, the director of the Women's Army Corps and said, I want you to change the image of women in the Army. And she spent most of her report talking about whether or not uniforms look, made the women look sufficiently feminine and proposed lowering the weight requirement because she thought that women who were heavier were less attractive in their uniforms. Come, works, it comes on both sides, I guess. Um, but the tides returns in the early 1980s, and um, I, I came up with the, the heading for this, this segment, as Mad Max Saves the Day. There's Mad, Mad Max Thurman. Uh, you seem to give him a lot of credit for turning the army around. How does he, how does he do that? Uh, you know, he, he is the person uh, who uh, lives, breathes, sleeps, dreams, the army, uh, and uh, you know, I, I I actually had written a lot more about him in the book than I eventually put in because I got fascinated with his younger life, where you know he took like you know doubled number of courses that he was supposed to every year at college just because he could, uh, and was someone who threw himself fully into whatever he did. People tell stories about you know him calling them at three in the morning because he had had an idea that he just thought it was important to share with them at that moment. Um, he was a man who was data driven. He was a man who understood how to take a problem and analyze it and come up with solutions. And in the 1980s, when the Army had kind of hit its low point in terms of quality, in terms of reputation, in terms of efficiency, he said, we're going to reform the recruiting system. Um, we're going to think about how we can do this better. And it was a multi-pronged effort. Part of it was attempting to draw, um, you know, stronger recruiters. Part of it was an attempt to change the image of the Army. He is where the be all you can be slogan and, and jingle came from. And part of it was a, a very carefully calculated system that gave recruiters incentives to find quality volunteers and uh to demand that people are recruiting to certain goals and certain ends. A body is not a body by his calculation. There are specific needs that have to be met. Um, he was a complicated individual. Uh, you know, I, I don't mean to suggest that he sort of descended from the heavens and saved the army, although there are people who definitely see it that way. Including him. Including him. <laughs> but he made an enormous difference in, in the policies institu he instituted, both as the, the head of recruiting and then in the personnel office. And of course, be all you can be was the what seemed to be the the, the key to the treasury. Yeah, uh, you know, it's, it's an earworm. An the, earworm, the, exactly. The, the jingle that you just can't get out of your head. But they worked hard to make sure that you know they distributed the music to marching bands around the country. They they did country versions and uh, you know soft rock versions and and you know it, it was everywhere, and. It's it's funny because a lot of the criticisms of later army advertising that one lasted forever uh, says it's all sort of you know not about the good of the group it's self centered you know the army of one be all you can be is about as self centered right. as you can get right. this was the eighties the the me decade right so no seventies is the me decade oh, right. you're supposed yes. to be into you know Reagan conservatism by this point but uh, it it worked very well it was very popular uh, with. I love the Certain fact that it was written, the jingle was written by the guy who did the Dr. Pepper commercial, which is still in my head, and I'll spare everyone uh, singing it, but also uh, was the author of Dazed and Confused. It yes. was eventually covered by Led Zeppelin. So the notion that the army is using a, a, you know, the artist who made a Led Zeppelin song seems a little... Well, one of the, one of the things uh, that I learned is that the, the army was incredibly adaptable about using the, the best tools of the commercial society. They used the, the strongest advertising agencies. They used the best songwriters. They were perfectly willing to do whatever fit best into the popular public culture at the time and was going to sell the army in the way that their market research showed was going to work with young people. And the young people, they increasingly were able to figure out how to appeal to a market segment. So in the 1980s, when, when quality had been low, they decided that what made a lot of sense was to, they wanted to get the kind of young people who might otherwise be going to college or, you know, might eventually go to college. Um, and their research discovered that parents thought that if their, their son or daughter joined the Army, they had failed. And if they went to college, they would 
had succeeded. So part of the Army funding for college was an attempt to change the image of the Army. And they tried to sell, go, go to Army, go to college. You know, we're no longer getting a girl or a husband. We're, we're going to college. Um, largely to parents as a way to change the image of the Army and make the parents think, you know, my kid is, is so wonderful. You know, not only is he or she going to college, they're doing it themselves by, you know, serving the nation. And you know, it, it really did work pretty well. One of the transitions you describe in, in this selling of the Army is from maybe the more selfish, be-all-you-can-be um, slogan to the notion of the Army as a social good, which mm -hmm. for me took us back then to Westmoreland or even to my Germans in the 50s, of yeah. the notion that we're going to teach people to be productive citizens. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, what happened, it, it's, it's relatively difficult to recruit people during wartime unless it is a, a very, you know, clearly necessary war. Um, but it's easy to get funding for the military. When there is no apparent immediate military threat, it's much more difficult to get funding for the military. And after the end of the Cold War, uh, as there is a great deal of, of uh, you know, reduction in the size of the force and debates about the peace dividend, you know, how do you justify your existence to the American public? What do you do? Um, the military, the Army is involved in lots of operations other than war during this period. There are an awful lot of deployments. But, you know, the Soviet Union is not looming out there anymore. So it, it really began a, a careful campaign to show the social value that the Army, the military in general, had to American society. You know, taking young people who were potentially either at risk or dangerous and giving them the discipline and the training to succeed in life, um, preparing people for the job market. You know, at some point the Army uh, claimed credit for the booming economy in the 1990s because it had, you know, sent so many wonderful young people to, to work, to be, take positions of, of leadership and responsibility. Uh, and, and it also, and this is what really fascinated me, um, portrayed itself as, in many ways, the ultimate example of the liberal idea of equality and diversity in American society. And, and there was some truth to that, which is one of the things that uh, I'm arguing in the book that I had written. Mm -hmm. I was struck by the fact that uh, Desert Storm, for example, in, in talking about this peace dividend, that Desert Storm seems to backfire sort of on the army, that we, we looked so good that it almost undermined their argument um, that they needed more. In other words, they seemed plenty good enough to take care of their job. Yeah, on, on the one hand, what Desert Storm did was to show that the volunteer army had succeeded, and it also was a, a real push toward recognizing the invaluable role that women were playing in the army. But there were major problems in terms of mobilization during this period, which internally people were extraordinarily aware of, and that's going to come back. Uh, internally in, in debates about army reform later. But externally, yeah, you know, the Cold War's over. Uh, Desert Storm shows that the volunteer military is a success. We don't need to fund recruiting anymore uh, because they're doing fine. We don't need to put a lot of money into the military. And a lot of people didn't seem to get it that just because, you know, there's a reduction in force that they need fewer people, that doesn't mean that they don't still need to recruit. Right, you know, you can't just like have people, you know, getting older and older and not have fresh young people coming in. Well, let's let's try to move into a more contemporary uh, period and talk about, I guess, army transformation or mm -hmm. um, in in the aftermath of the Iraq War. How has the army changed its recruiting strategy, uh, its image of itself? Well. There started to be debates about how the Army should be recruiting by the late 1990s, before 9-11, before um, wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And in, in part, there, there was a lot of sort of semi-conservative pushback about the kinder, gentler Army and whether uh, – the New York Times ran a story that said, you know, who knows whether or not they're any good at fighting, but they're a really great place to, you know, for social opportunity and the, the development of equality in American society. And uh, that, that was something that, you know, made some people fairly nervous. And there were discussions about how to um, – shape the military in a way that was more oriented toward national defense that started before you know, recent conflicts. Um, in terms of recruiting, uh, 
the the be all you can be slogan um, you know went away and uh, I think it's 2001 replaced by an army of one research the army does endless amounts of research often very sophisticated research and you know it, it had become wallpaper uh, young people didn't hear it anymore and they started research discovered that young people in the late 1990s heard be all you can be as their parents nagging them. <laughs> And so you know, they're trying to come up with something else, uh, and something that had more to do with the military function of the army as opposed to the, uh, you know, job training benefits piece of the army. That that one didn't work. Uh, the the slogan just was a failure, and then 9/11 happened, and you know, there were there were massive changes. But there started to be rethinking about what the character of the U.S. military should be. So you, the, that chapter is titled Warrior Ethos. So they're, they're trying to cultivate this notion of, of the values that the Army instills in young people. Is it more of this effort to, to reform, redeem young people, or how has the, the tone changed? Uh, less about reforming and redeeming young people and more about being prepared. Every member of the Army must embrace the warrior ethos, must be prepared to be a warrior. Uh, you know, that... Um, that was that was reinforced after the incident with Jessica Lynch, right. uh, when so it includes it, women now that, that need women. to have this warrior ethos, which is something everybody has to be prepared. Um, but it's, it's a fundamental shift in recruiting tactics and training, and in the ways in which the army is presenting itself to the national, to the world. But you know, of necessity in part because of what the military has been called upon to do in recent years. When, when, when people were sent off to war, um, especially the reserves, who had joined the military on advertising campaigns, this like, you know, join the army, go to college, or one weekend one a month. Weekend a month. Um, you know, it, it would be ridiculous to say that people joined without having any understanding of what they were doing. Nonetheless, that kind of advertising is, to say the least, irresponsible uh, when you think about what men and women are called upon to do um, in military service. And there has been a fairly powerful retreat from that notion that military service is all about benefits, even though there are substantial benefits offered to those who serve. Um, there's and to re-enlist, too. Right? To there re are huge bonuses seemingly for re-enlistment. Well, for, for a volunteer force, they, they really do hope for about a 50% re-enlistment rate, whereas with the draft, it was about 10%. And so much of what the Army offers in terms of benefits is based on trying to get people to re-enlist. And because the volunteer force tends to be older, more often people who have spouses um, and often children, uh, that has often translated into family benefits, which, you know, is, is good because the Army offers fabulous child care. It offers excellent health care. Um, on the other hand, what that's done is to create an Army that is powerfully based in families, which creates enormous problems for deployment. And, and for those families when, you know, the mother or the father is sent away for long periods to war. I guess that forms a segue also to this notion that I wanted to, to raise um, before we ended about uh, private contractors, right? Okay. So that I can see how reenlistment saves the Army money. They don't have to spend the money recruiting. They don't have to spend as much retraining and so forth if they can get someone back. But there is this, this trend now to rely on private contractors. Yeah. And that seems to... Um, to be a really terrible idea, I think, from a both from a civic standpoint, mm -hmm. in that we're creating private mercenary armies, um, but also from the financial point of view of the army, because the army spends the money training these people, and then they go get a job with Blackwater, who sells them back to the army at a higher at price. At higher price, yeah. I mean, you don't really talk about that in the, in the book. Uh, kind Not of, so much, but, but it's, it's part of the larger package. I mean, what does it mean to have a volunteer force that? increasingly draws from a relatively narrow part of the population. Um, you know, the, the idea that the volunteer force is, is based on exploiting those people who don't have any other options is, is just wrong. I mean, the people who joined the military uh, graduated high, from high school at much higher percentages than the general population. They score very well in terms of uh, aptitude and intelligence tests. Uh, you know, it's, it's not an exploitative situation. but. Nonetheless, it draws more heavily from people from rural areas, people from uh, where there are fewer economic opportunities, 
uh, and it draws more heavily from the South and from families that have a tradition of military service. So, you know, if we're talking about making decisions about national policy and the future, having a military that is increasingly isolated from the rest of the nation um, and who bear a, a highly disproportionate burden, um, you know, is a problem for the nation and for the military itself, especially as those people in, in political service increasingly haven't had military experience. We're getting more people coming now. Um, and then once you privatize military action and those people aren't constrained by the same kinds of requirements that the U.S. military are. Uh, you've added another piece to the puzzle in ways that not only is expensive, but you know is, is counterproductive to the notion of military service as an expression of the obligation of the citizen to the nation. Well, I think that's probably a, a perfect spot to end the discussion of this book because it, it highlights, the, as I said at the beginning, the, the multiple audience of audiences that this book speaks to. When I teach graduate classes about military history, we talk about the, the, the main audiences for military history, that we have multiple audiences typically. There's, a, there's a, an academic audience for, for certain books. There's a professional audience of, of the service academies and, and people in the military bureaucracy who, are, who read it. And then there's a, a public interest in military history. And I think this book, as, as you just pointed out, I think you pointed out some of the themes that it raises, should also appeal to a, an audience maybe that's not typically, typically interested in military history, but is you know, an, audi an audience of concerned citizens or people that are interested in uh, American society. So I think that's a, that's a great way to, to end this book because I think it highlights the, the value of the book for thinking about these kinds of issues. Um, I would like to end, end the interviews with a, uh, just a brief introduction of what kind of things you're working on now. Where are you going next? That's a very good question. <laughs> uh, I am starting to do some research on the way that the, man, the Army tried to manage the issue of race in the late 60s through the mid-1970s, and um, thinking about the extent to which it attempted to turn to uh, mechanisms of, of human resources sensitivity training and such as a way to try and get people to think about the role of race in their lives and in the Army, but also to think about not only the ways in which people attempted to struggle over the meaning of race in American society and the American military, but institutions attempted to come in and deal with the challenges that that issue posed. Um, that's early stages. Right now, I am um, mainly being chair of the department, and that seems to be taking up way too much of my time. I know, I know too well. All right, well, thank you for, for spending some time with us today, and when that other book comes out, um, we'll have you back on again. Thanks very much. Thanks. I enjoyed talking to you. You've been listening to my conversation with Beth Bailey from Temple University, author of America's Army, Making the All-Volunteer Force, published by Harvard University Press in 2009. I'm your host, Jay Lockenauer. Thanks for listening. Hope to have you back again sometime.